So here's a poem. This is from Rilke. Like cloud shapes, torn and molded by the wind, the world is being changed and rapidly. What comes into the fullness falls toward the ancient source and gratefully. Soaring over the tumult and the change like some great bird, born further and higher, intones the song that pierced the dawn on that first day, O God of the lyre, meaning the instrument, meaning something like this, the, uh, something like God as a, as a singer soaring over the, the vast chaotic sea of change. No one ought ever love their suffering, but no one ever loves without its pain. No one ought ever love their suffering, but no one ever loves without its pain. And as we die, we come to wondering if there was something we could not yet see, that winged thing that merges with earth's suffering to make us what we otherwise would never be. As we die, we come to wondering if there was something we could not yet see, that winged thing, the God of the liar, in other words, that winged thing that merges with earth's suffering to make us what we otherwise would never be. This poem by Rilke, I think, gives us a window into our present anxiety about what's happening on the earth, what's happening to the earth, what's happening to human cultures that inhabit the earth, what's happening to our ecosystems and our political systems and our uh, economic systems. There's so much change, so much chaos, tumult, so much um, unrest and unease, I think. And at the same time, there's business as usual and the status quo, and it seems like um, the way things are are the way things are. It's like a dual a message all the time or um, conflicting points of data. So much is changing so rapidly and so much is staying the same. And I think Rilke here is playing with even the word spirit, ruach in Hebrew, the spirit that hovers over the darkness and chaos on the first day of creation, the mystery, the creative mystery that brings forth um, something like order, meaning, logos, from and goodness from darkness, disorder, chaos, and change. That's that winged creature, god of the lyre, the song. I think Orpheus is the god of the lyre. And I think he's playing with that sort of Greek, um, Judeo-Christian <laughs> mixing of things. And I think this poem also speaks to the suffering. So many of us are suffering. 
I think about James Hillman's famous line, a hundred years of psychotherapy and we're sicker than ever. And in some cases, we're, re- we're reaching epidemic uh, levels of anxiety and depression. And especially with our young people, what the hell is going on? And the earth is suffering and countries are suffering and the Bahamas right now is a place of suffering having just been devastated by a hurricane. There's a lot of suffering. There's also a lot of alleviation of suffering. I mean, what a strange world. So much is changing so rapidly, as Rilke says. I mean, um, global poverty levels are the lowest they have ever been. And so many people have been helped out of abject poverty. And also at what cost? And as more people enter the middle class, we know um, so does their level of, or it corresponds to the level of their consumption going up, which has consequences for, for the earth and the global uh, climate that we all inhabit. It's very complex world we live in right now. And, and Rilke seems to be saying something like, okay, there is suffering and we ought not to fall in love with our suffering, but no one, um, let me see exactly how he puts it. No one ever loves without its pain. That suffering is inevitable and pain is inevitable as, as uh, an ingredient in love, love itself. In fact, um, we can't love without the possibility of not loving. We can't love without the possibility of, uh, without limits, without mortality. What would love mean if, if um, the, the thing, a thing is probably not a very sensitive way of saying it, without the other, um, without the fragility of the other and the possibility and inevitability of loss. What else would love mean? And I think he's pulling us into the deep mystery of the divine here and the creative um, uh, spirit and bird of mystery herself that brings forth beauty, goodness, and order out of the chaos. There was something we could not yet see, Rilke says, that winged thing that merges with earth's suffering. And I, I think of the, the Christian image of the incarnation, that the divine would mix with suffering itself, with the earth's suffering, and be that suffering. That's the, the deep, um, the deepest stream of the mystery that is uh, Christianity. That's going all the way down to the, to the archetypal and symbolic core, the core mystery. That the thing, the winged thing, the spirit, the creative force mixes with earth's suffering. And then Rilke says, and makes us what we otherwise would not be. Some, something out of that, out of the suffering. And I wanted to begin this morning, welcome to Hints and Guesses, my podcast, this is Kent Dobson, with a poem. Because I don't know if you're, you're like me, but... I 
have been recently a bit overwhelmed by all the bad news, the bad political news. I mean, that seems like what the, what the news is by definition, bad news. And this year at C3, where, um, where I'm the lead teacher here in Grand Haven, um, I did a whole year that I called Terra, a year of, of returning to the earth and the earth's ethos every week. And, and at C3, I do half the teachings of the year, and then the other half are all kinds of very interesting guests. And they all were asked to just simply speak into the theme of, of Terra. And it was an amazing year, I think. And I don't think I've ever done a series. I've done all kinds of series um, in all kinds of places, but not such a singular focus for such a long period of time. So it was like, I, it was like, I kept having to come back around, spiraling back around. And even things that I'm interested in and reading and attracted, attracted to, just out of, my, out of my own curiosity, I would come back, I'd circle back around. All right, what, is this, what does this have to do with Terra? What does it have to do with the Earth, the Earth's ethos? What's my relationship with the Earth? What's our culture's relationship with the Earth? Just having to focus on the question was a very beautiful and I think uh, pretty life-giving to me. And also, I found myself reading all kinds of things about climate and about climate change and finding myself being hooked again. And I think it's worth saying, something I've said on this podcast, but it, it just keeps, um, keeps coming to me as an image. Ken Wilber says that one of the results of um, sort of cultural manifestations right now, given that uh, culture is at a relatively low level of consciousness, according to uh, Ken Wilber, collective, con- uh, collective culture here, Western culture, he says, we, we are finding ourselves in a cul-de-sac of narcissism and nihilism. And sometimes we vacillate between the two. I know I vacillate between the two. Narcissism is sometimes really, really easy to point out in other people, like big public figures and um, heads of state and, and things like that. Oh, they're obviously the narcissist. But um, because of the fear, anxiety, and uncertainty and and I think maybe even the soul's call on, on meaning, meaning the soul is back there knocking on the door saying, what is a meaningful life? What is a meaningful life? And that ratchets up the existential anxiety. Um, I think he's saying we're reacting to that existential state and also um, the general anxieties of culture. It's shifting so rapidly and so, so quickly with narcissism. Well, it's about me and my rights and what I can get and my comfort and happiness and personal well-being and protecting my uh, values and and really being insistent that my way of seeing the world is the right way of seeing the world. And we're all, I think we're all prone to that. Who doesn't think, I mean, anyone who's in an intimate relationship has found themselves saying, my way of seeing the world and this relationship is the right way. So if that's the case in every intimate relationship, of course we're 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 all we all tend toward uh, narcissistic tendencies. And nihilism is maybe the the dark side of the moon. Uh, 
of our own immaturity. And nihilism is simply meaninglessness. None of this means anything at all. It is just random firings of electrons and atoms and chemicals. And my ability to understand it is just more random brain firings of chemicals and neurons and synapses and and but what does it mean it it's meaningless meaning meaning is just a a, const, a social construct and where does that leave us where does that leave us it leads us with just saying yes to a low level depression i think and and around and around the cul-de-sac we go, narcissism and nihilism. And I actually like the cul-de-sac. I mean, you sort of, <laughs> maybe a small little jab toward the suburban ideal. We get out there in the cul-de-sac in our own isolated world, and we just drive around in circles, narcissism and nihilism. And around and around we go. And I, and I have to be honest that recently I found myself a little more in the nihilistic camp, especially about reading uh, climate News. I tried to do some balanced reading this year. Two books stand out to me. One was a book called Draw Down. Highly recommend it. Uh, it's, it's a much more optimistic and hopeful assessment, though it's very realistic. And it's mainly dealing with greenhouse gases, but it, it's a cost-benefit analysis. It's saying, um, what would it cost to, a, to address these problems and what's the, the benefit? And it lists a hundred things that we can and are and already are doing and then it has a several more maybe 80 things and then it has 20 that are on the leading edge people are beginning to make steps in this direction and i actually like the image of drawdown it's a militaristic image which fits with the kind of extraction industrial conquering western culture that brought us the modern world it's a it itself conquered nature and so I think he's playing with that militaristic image saying, all right, what does that look like now that we've sort of conquered things? What does a drawdown look like? What does peace look like? So I like that as an image. And I'll give you a quick example because I found it kind of amazing. I mean, we're dealing with greenhouse gases here. Number five, I think, number five on the list for cost benefit is education of, of uh, women. So... It's a really nuanced book, and it's very math-heavy, and math is not my strong suit, but all the math is in there, so you can check it out. And then I, um, maybe on the, the other extreme, uh, I'm reading, and I'm not quite done with, a book called The Uninhabitable Earth, which, <laughs> um, there you have it. And it's a, it's a pretty stark look at the range of possibilities in front of us. So something like the sea is going to rise and here's the range and here are the effects of such a range. And just personally, I don't walk away from reading this stuff with a lot of hope. It actually sort of sucks me into that kind of nihilistic cul-de-sac. And that's not, I don't think that's enough of a reason to say, uh, don't read it then. Like, I'm going to stick my head in the sand and I'm not going to take a look at, at that. But even, even that book, I think, because there's something like 260 some detailed scientific footnotes in, in the book, The Uninhabitable Earth. And what's interesting and what I'm learning actually from both, both of these two books and all the other articles that I've been reading is that, uh, 
what's interesting is that they're, they take, uh, scientists are taking uh, current evidence, saying here's the evidence that we've collected, and they're, they're running that out. They're, they're making some predictions, obviously. They're saying, well, if this is the case now, this is what it could look like in the future. But one of the things about, that makes it complicated is that the Earth as a kind of whole ecosystem is so incredibly complex, we don't know how the earth will react to these changes. We don't know because the earth is not one thing. It's such a complex web, an interconnected web, that we don't know all of the ways in which the earth will respond to the changes that human beings are are uh, making on the earth. And that I think is, is I don't care if you're conservative or liberal, I, I actually don't believe anymore that sort of liberals are, you know, pro-earth and conservatives don't care and want it to all burn. That's just silliness. That's ridiculous. It's not true. Um, and what was my point with that? Um, I think, my point was, I think, um, we can agree that what we do to the earth and to the ecosystems has consequences. And I'm from a small town in, I grew up uh, junior high and high school, small town in Michigan called Belmont. And Belmont is a place where the Wolverine Worldwide Shoe Company, maker of hush puppies, dumped uh, all kinds of toxins from their... Uh, manufacturing these shoes, which are now showing up in PFAS, and, uh, which you've probably maybe heard about in the news. And, and it's poisoned the drinking water. And it doesn't matter if you voted for Trump or Clinton. When your water is poisoned, you know industries and corporations take advantage of, of laws and power, and what they do to the environment has an effect on human life. And we're talking about cancer here. Among other things, you know, my dad was uh, died of ALS. He had ALS for 15 years. And it is a bit of, speaking of speculation, but um, it's, I sometimes muse and speculate about what was the cause of this ALS. Because when my dad went to the clinic in Ann Arbor and, uh, where he received, he had a yearly checkup in, in Ann Arbor. And one of the things that they told him about ALS is that there are genetic, there seems to be something like a genetic predisposition, but they're not sure exactly what that is. It's, they're not technical about it, but they think, okay, there's something like a genetic predisposition, although that's, it's not the same thing as saying it's a genetic disease. There is a genetic variety of ALS, but my dad did not have that particular one. But, um, it, in other words, the, the gun is loaded here genetically, but, but the environment pulls the trigger. That's what they told him. The environment pulls the trigger. And again, they don't know. There's simply not enough research to know what kinds of environmental factors pull the trigger on a disease like ALS. And ALS is, is booming. It's on the rise. It's like scary how many people... I now bump into and my mom knows uh, she's much more involved in the in the ALS world because my dad had it so long. Just how many people and connections and contacts and family members and and uh, acquaintances are are getting this disease? You know what is happening? And now we're finding out. There's an article in M Live a couple weeks ago that uh, Michigan, as a state, 
seems to have some of the worst water in the country, which is so terrible because we have some of the most water. I mean, with the Great Lakes, not to mention all of our rivers and, and inland lakes. And all right, we're, we're realizing what we do um, affects us. So climate change is only one conversation that's worth having about, about sort of cause and effect, you know, atmospheric change, soil change, water change, um, climate change, ecosystem change. Uh, and, and of course, Flint is a, is a great example of what happened with trying to change the water to the Flint River and, and the, the corrosion of the lead pipes and the poisoning of children. You know, um, we made those changes and we also put in the lead pipes in the first place. So, uh, I think we're, we're waking up to the consequences of the extraction industrial mindset uh, equaling a life of happiness. Technological advancements, which I am all for, come with consequences. That's not a conservative or liberal question. That's just a human question. So that was an, some introductory thoughts. The title of this podcast this is um, another contribution to my Bible series here, which I call We've Lost the Plot. We've Lost the Plot number seven. This, would be, this is the seventh, um, uh, number seven in the, in the series. We've Lost the Plot, and the subtitle is It's the End of the World as We Know It, from the REM song, fantastic song. It's the end of the world as we know it. And that's what I want to talk about. I want to talk about the apocalypse. I want to talk about the end. I want to talk about end times. And I want to talk about, just briefly, just just touch upon two apocalyptic-oriented stories in the Bible. One is the flood narrative, and uh, meaning the Noah story. I'll mention a few things about that. And then I'll talk very briefly about the book of Revelation, um, which really is is actually called the apocalypse. And why do I want to do this? I think because something like the end times is part of the collective Western psyche. Maybe it's part of the collective psyche of human beings because um, all cultures that I know of, that I've studied, being a, a sort of a armchair, I was going to say armchair philosopher of comparative religion, maybe, I guess that's one way of putting it, maybe a fan, a fan of comparative religion, uh, but anyway, every culture seems to have myths and stories and legends about collapse and renewal and about the, the collapse of culture and the collapse of ecosystems and cataclysmic floods. And I just listened to uh, Michael Mead, one of my um, uh, favorite teachers in, in terms of myth, uh, did, a, did a couple pa podcasts on the Amazon. He's always talking about uh, modern uh, contemporary events and then looking for a mythic backdrop. And he found a story from the Amazon, Amazon uh, from the Amazon people, I don't know which one exactly, where um, the world is destroyed by fire. And then up from the ash be, uh, come new shoots and new trees. And of course, forest-dwelling people are going to uh, give us mythic stories of utter destruction and renewal that are forest-based. Whereas in Mesopotamia, and especially between the Tigris and the Euphrates, it's going to be flood 
oriented. So what is it? What, why have human cultures always told stories about the end? And does the world really end? Is that the point of these stories? Is it, um, is it the case that, that the clock is now ticking and that we're, we're entering the final phase of the earth community or the human community on earth? Why are, we t- why are these stories being told? I think that's maybe a good question behind the question. Why, were, why have human beings, human cultures told apocalyptic stories? What's the purpose of them? Is it to scare us? Um, is it to evoke change? Is it to challenge our, our worldview? I mean, in, on, on the one hand, all myths are meant to challenge our worldview. That's, that's how they work on us. They don't ask us to believe them. You don't say, hey, do you believe in this myth? Actually, they just put pressure on the ego and, and on the immature ego. And they give us insights into the patterns of nature and reality and the divine and the mysteries. Here are the patterns, and they put pressure on us. They challenge us. They change our life in that, in that way. Um, so, what about these stories of cataclysmic uh, change? And and speaking of Rilke, what of this this god of the song, um, this spirit? hovering over the waters of chaos, what is it that we don't see that, that the mystery brings forth in the midst of suffering and change and even destruction? What, what is at work? What mystery is at work? So those are some of the things I want to talk about. The other thing I, maybe I should just say about end times in general is that uh, it's, it's in the the cultural milieu to sound fancy what do i mean uh we have shows about preppers and prepping and maybe you have friends that are preppers maybe you're a prepper and what does that mean exactly what are we prepping for the inevitable global collapse because of peak oil or peak anything what can't um what about those prepping for natural disasters so we have prepping we have um we have this super uh, meta meme of the zombie and the zombie apocalypse. I remember when, I, when my book, Bitten by a Camel, came out, I, was, I did a series of talks around it, and, and I would always take questions. I really enjoy questions. And I remember one, one young person was like, what would you do in the zombie apocalypse? And I laughed because I thought he was joking. He's like, no, seriously. I was like, well, what do you mean? He's like, no, I mean like the zombie apocalypse. And, and it was kind of like a weird, I didn't really know what to say. I didn't know if he was serious or not. And I said, well, let's talk about that afterwards. And, and then we did. He's like, no, I'm serious. Like, uh, um, I don't know exactly what zombies are, but you know, the coming apocalypse. And I was like, oh, this is strange. It's strange that someone would ask such a question at a book reading um, about uh, like my own personal faith journey. <laughs> I guess my book did contain some things about um, a little, maybe maybe a couple paragraphs about end times and end time thinking, where it came from, from my own fundamentalist uh, past. But anyway, my point is, it's in the culture. Like, the world as we know it is going to collapse and whatever. That may involve zombies. Any kind of doomsday show or movie or book or series means it's in the water. 
And it's a fascination. It's a fixation. And I think the more we experience cultural anxiety around climate change, political change, if we start to sink into a recession, um, which, you know, they're predicting, uh, that increases the anxiety and then shows like um, whatever, the walking dead start popping up all over the place. It's like we have a fascination or a fixation. And maybe it just comes from, on the one hand, some, I'm, I'm theorizing a bit here, but from kind of the more, uh, from the limbic brain, the the fight, the flight or freeze, the, the fear-oriented reactivity deep in the limbic brain, because we evolved in a, in a complex and, and dangerous world, much more dangerous even than, than today. The forest itself and, and animals and plants and, and storms and volcanoes and, um, you know, these, these create, these are deep in our, in the collective psyche. And again, anytime a cultural anxiety is there, uh, this reactivity is present. And so perhaps uh, theorizing about the end is just pretty, a pretty natural part of being a human being. After all, what does human consciousness bring with it? Human consciousness, consciousness brings with it imagination about the future. That's what makes us unlike, as far as we know, any other creature on earth, where we're able to imagine for good and bad what the future looks like. We're, we're able to imagine one generation, three generations, seven generations, maybe at a certain point it starts to shut down, which is part of the problem talking about climate change when we're talking about a hundred 200, 1,000 years from now, that's kind of hard for people to imagine. But anyway, we have this, uh, we certainly have the gift of imagination itself. And, and contemplating um, sort of our own demise. And I would like to say, my first point about apocalyptic stories is that they're not really stories about the end, the end. They're stories of collapse and renewal, all of them. Collapse, renewal, collapse, renewal. The flood narrative, worldwide, global, catastrophic destruction of creation of animals and human cultures and renewal. Noah's family, the two by two, every animal on the planet, regeneration, it's recreation. So it tells us something that on the symbolic level, the apocalyptic stories, stories of the end, are trying to communicate that there is no such thing as the end. Actually, I sort of got that from, from something Michael Mead said. <laughs> he said, the secret is the world never ends. And what we have instead is um, destruction, renewal, creation, destruction, recreation as a pattern. And that's, I mean, from a scientific point of view, we know that's what happens with all plants and beings. Into the earth they go, and, and there's a kind of regeneration and recreation and uh, a reforming, and, and what part of us is really gone, um, what part of us merges with, with the earth itself in a kind of renewal, a cycle of renewal. The seasons itself communicate something similar. Not to mention um, the the 
the slings and arrows of history and of empire. Something like the Roman Empire, which the world had never seen, uh, collapsed. And something like the Persian Empire, which the world had never seen, collapsed. And, and, and you know, on down the, the line of history we, we go, uh, collapse and renewal is part of um, one of the, the deepest symbols of meaning that human beings have ever bumped into. And uh, our stories and poems and, and architecture and art point to this reality. And, and part of being a, a human being with, that is maturing and growing is that we recognize that, that this is always at work. It's, it's humbling and humiliating to, to realize we don't, we don't have that much control. One afternoon on an island and we c- everything that we've worked for can be just completely demolished and left to ashes and ruin one afternoon. And this is just part of the human condition. That's, that's part of what it, what it means to be a conscious human being. And I think maturity looks like facing up to that, saying, all right, we have choices and and, and, and there's something called chance and circumstance. And we're always in a dance. And culture is always in a dance with nature and the forces of nature. And especially the more that we screw with nature, we know we're increasing the possibility of reaping what, what, what we sow in that respect. So um, facing up to that is humbling. And I think a part of the uh, apocalyptic uh, sort of um, gift is to humble us and to say, you are not going to be here forever. Your culture is not going to be here forever. Your empire is not going to be here forever. Um, in one afternoon, you can be reduced to nothing. And yet still in the ashes, in the layers of destruction, something like new new seeds are possible or as rilke puts it the spirit is hovering over the waters again or that's actually from genesis let me let me look up the line again um that winged thing that merges with earth suffering to make us what we otherwise would never be to work with some sort of the mystery of working with um the place of suffering to bring forth what would never be Maybe perhaps this uh, working with is the job of mystery or of the divine. And maybe one part of us, maybe our own uh, divinity, if you'd like to put it that way, is, is also uh, bearing the same responsibility to work with the suffering of the earth in our own way, in our own incarnate way. In other words, we're called to the same task, it seems to me which means that we can't talk ourselves out of the suffering. I wish I wish we could say I wish it was I wish it made sense to say don't read anything negative. Don't look at the news. Uh don't read the ticker at the bottom of the screen on the news feed ticker. Um don't read scary articles about the future. Um but I don't I don't really see that as a solution. In fact, uh, in the same way, I wouldn't say uh, 
here are five tactics to help you avoid anxiety or feelings of dread or terror. <laughs> or I thought of another Rilke line, let everything happen to you, beauty and terror. Just keep going. No feeling is final. So <laughs> it's like, let, let them happen to you. And I, I think that's probably one of the things I've learned from my own work at Animus Valley Institute, where I'm um, doing some training to be a guide in um, these sort of wilderness-based uh, experiences, psycho-spiritual experiences, is that uh, we, we try to help people, we try to talk people into their experiences and into their feelings, even though no feeling is final. Same with depth psychology in general. It's not like a series of, of uh, tools to talk you out of your feelings, but rather into them and into the layers just beneath them. And uh, same with some of the fear and terror about, about the global state of affairs. All right, let's talk ourselves into those feelings, but deep enough where we discover that maybe something else is at work. Maybe it's it, uh, to talk ourselves into them, ironically, is not to be hijacked by their obsessiveness and reactivity and sort of gripped by um, reactive fear, but to approach it and to see even what's just beneath that. Something like, I am the one who is afraid that no matter what I do, bad things are coming. And also that is not the sum total of who I am. I am not my feelings. There is a me beneath that. I'm the one who is having that present feeling. You know, that's that's basic. Um, that's the basic work of good of good therapy. And I think what's interesting about apocalyptic stories is it brings us into a story and gives us a frame and a sequence. And the sequence is a bit scary and frightening. And in the middle of that sequence, you begin to discover that. Uh, Maybe we don't need to resign ourselves to such a fatalistic way of being in the world, fatalistic in the narcissistic sense and in the nihilistic sense. And so anyway, let, 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 let's just talk briefly about a couple stories. I've been thinking about the flood story because of sea um, rise and because of the massive Category 5 hurricane creep that crept its way uh, toward the Bahamas and toward the eastern coast of the of uh, the United States. Anyway, um, so what's the, what is the flood story about? Just in the most general sense, the story is about the Earth and human communities. This is the way it starts: being in a state of corruption. Actually, what the the Hebrew word is Hamas, which means violence. That human cultures had resorted to violence, and there was no justice on the Earth, except. One man who was walking righteously, uprightly, meaning he wasn't walking the way of violence. And, and as, as you know, God says, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start over, which is a very common theme in a lot of creation and recreation stories, especially with human beings, <laughs> where the God's like, enough is enough, let's start over. And something like that is, is at work here. And he says, I'm going to start over. God says, I'm going to start over. Except, no, I want you to survive, you and your family. And so build a boat 
and no one's ever seen a flood like this. And but a flood is coming, and you're going to build a boat and and follow these careful instructions. So Noah does, and then he's told, bring onto this boat every animal on the planet, two by two. And now, I mean, we we obviously know we're dealing with the symbolic here, and the metaphoric, which is what the the genre of literature demands. We cannot bring our literalistic minds to it, the post-Enlightenment literalistic approach to history. We can't bring to stories like this. We totally misread them and misunderstand them. Because it's not saying, how would that work? How could you fit two of every... The story is saying, on the symbolic level, the future of humanity depends upon a human relationship between the animal kingdom and the human cultural world. And to be, it's funny because the story says, I'm going to start over and I'm going to need the help of human beings. That's a very high view of human beings from sort of the the Yahweh-istic approach of the Bible. It's not, um, it's kind of surprising. You think, want to just start over and like get a new Adam and Eve and get some clay. But he, but, but God says something like, uh, the story is saying something like, human cooperation is needed for a healthy future. And part of that means you have to recognize that the health of the animal kingdom and the plant kingdom, the earth kingdom, is your responsibility. And you bring them on board and you turn them loose. And and the fruitfulness, that phrase, be fruitful and multiply, which is mentioned before the flood in Genesis and after the flood, be fruitful and multiply, applies to human beings and to every creature on the earth. That ought to really shock the I mean, that, that's a fact. I mean, I'm not making that up. That's in the story. And that means the flourishing of the entire earth community is a concern of God in the story. And it's a concern of those who are walking righteously, uprightly, walking with God. That's what it says of Noah. One who walks with God is concerned about the animal kingdom. And instead of two by two dying, which is sort of the place we're finding ourselves now with so much bad news about extinction, we ought to be the kind of people who are bringing those animals on board. What, what does a habitat look like for, uh, for their capacity to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth? That ought to be the human concern. So that's, that's surprising. So then it rains 40 days and 40 nights. Um, there are other Mesopotamian flood stories. It rains for seven days. And uh, there's a Sumerian version and a Babylonian version. They, they seem to be borrowing from the, the same cultural uh, context between the Tigris and the Euphrates, where floods happened. Uh, nevertheless, that's background detail. Um, anyway, global flood, and the waters recede, and Noah uh, sends out ravens first, and then and then a dove. And the dove brings back, I think in the Epic of Gilgamesh, I probably should have looked this up, but it's, it's been a long time since I've looked at it. I think in the Epic of Gilgamesh, they only send out ravens. If I'm not mistaken, um, but anyway, in the in the Noah story, the dove is the final one, and the dove brings back the olive branch, and and this again is the that symbol of regeneration. No matter what, even the the most unimaginable terror for the ancient person, a global worldwide flood that nobody escapes, even that springs forth. Out of that springs forth a new new life new trees, new olive uh, branches. And life begins again. Same with the uh, Amazonian epic of uh, global fire 
And then up from the ashes springs the same sort of tiny shoot, and the shoot becomes a tree, and regeneration happens. So it's telling, it's, I think this, the story is communicating something very powerful, that nature will always be nature. It will always regenerate. And even if the worst case scenario happens, life is life. And, and, and to be a human with some maturity is to bow, in a sense, to the reverence of this reality. That regeneration happens. And how can I... The question for Noah, sort of post-story, is what kind of cultural world am I going to inhabit now? And will it be a culture of more Hamas, more violence and, and destruction? And, or is this an opportunity to recreate culture, one that is in much more harmony with the, with the natural world two by two and all animals and all beings and all plants and also with my neighbor? Because what's interesting is two things happen right after the flood story. Uh, the first is there's a sacrifice, and sacrifice is such an, a misunderstood concept. Um, most people, I think, make a major error by assuming that sacrifice was to keep the gods happy. I don't see that at all, um, or I see that as very minimally. It's hard to get into the psyche of an ancient person, but I don't really see that as a major uh, force like God is not going to like me if if He doesn't have cut up animals. That that's kind of silly. I think a sacrifice, uh, ancient sacrifice, biblical sacrifice, communicates a couple different things. One, it communicates that my well-being requires the death of something. That's why both plants and animals are brought up to the temple. Plants and animals are part of the sacrificial system. And that was true across the entire ancient world, at least the Mesopotamian world. So what's that saying? I live at the death of something else. Like Joseph Campbell saying, oh, so you're a vegetarian. Can't you hear the carrot screaming? So plants and animals, my well-being. And the sacrifice, bringing that into a sacred context, makes that life-death-life cycle sacred by saying, I don't want to just stuff my face like a dog. No, I need to say, nope, this, this is a sacrifice of a life, and my well-being comes from this, and I'm going to honor this animal and the divine mystery at the same time. I can't think of anything more important. And that puts you in right relationship to the to the life-death-life cycle of all things, and to the destruction-renewal pattern that is behind apocalyptic stories, the death and regeneration. I want to be in sacred, reverent relationship with this mystery. So sacrifice becomes extremely important. I think that's even kind of the psychological, uh, deep, um, unconscious background of saying a prayer before a meal. It's the same thing. I don't want to just stuff my face like a dog ravenously, um, uh, I don't know, trying to meet my most base instinctual needs. No, I want to live in a reverent relationship because if I stuff my face and devour things like a dog uh, on my plate, perhaps I'm going to do that to other people and to the planet and to the community. And, and yeah, that's what we're having. That's <laughs> called modern life, uh, uh, sadly. 
maybe the other thing about sacrifice is that it's it says something like, and I got a little this idea a little bit from from Jordan Peterson where he says sacrifice is an acknowledgement that um, I have to sacrifice something now for the future well being, rather than that sort of that greed impulse saying no, as a as an act of faith in a way, and and humility I'm going to take the very best and say this doesn't belong to me. Because that's what we see as, as wise living. I have to make sacrifices now for the future well-being for my own sake and also for my children and my children's children and so forth and so on. And that's bringing, again, bringing that, that simple impulse that what I do now, what I sacrifice now, things will go well for me in the future into the sacred context. So Noah gets out of the boat instead of saying, I'm a beast, I survived the flood, screw all you all, now let's party. He comes out and says, uh, all right, I want to be in right relationship to the future. And so he sacrificed. The other thing that happens in the story is that there are some rules and laws. You'd have to read the, the I think this part is in Genesis 9, where it says, don't eat meat with blood in it. Don't eat meat that has the lifeblood still in it. Let that spill onto the ground. And these, these are the, the early traces of what later becomes the kosher diet. Again, bringing the sacred context to eating. That's what the kosher diet is about. And the specifics of it are just cultural, I suppose. But I'm not going to devour the lifeblood because all things have a lifeblood in it. And my life has a lifeblood. And so does my children. So does my neighbor. And then there's some um, rules about taking someone's life around murder which is trying to address the Hamas or violence at the beginning of the story. And the rabbis say, because it reads kind of strange, it's very hard to translate in Genesis, but it says, if a man takes the lifeblood of another, by man shall his lifeblood be taken. And you could just read that as, oh, this is about capital punishment, and if you kill somebody, you're going to be killed. But the rabbis come in and say, that's not really what is being expressed. It's saying we need a justice system. And the lifeblood is so sacred that we have to um, have a fair and equitable system of justice. Uh, and that is our responsibility. So it's bringing in, it's trying to bring in a justice system, a system of responsibility to our own human tendency toward Hamas, toward violence toward the way of Cain at the beginning of the Genesis story, who in his fit of rage and jealousy and misunderstanding around the issue of sacrifice, he murders his brother, saying, oh, we, we don't want a world like this. We, we have to take responsibility for um, and this tendency that all human beings have if we want a future that is viable. So that's, that's a bit of the Noah story. So one other thing I might say about it, and maybe it's obvious, and I may have even put this on a podcast a long time ago, but I think it's an interesting sort of observation. I think the story is setting up a dichotomy between, I guess, what we would call the status quo and a creative and new way of being in the world. Something like uh, culture, especially a, a culture rooted in Hamas violence, is not going to change easily. And the status quo is likely to win the day. And I mean, if you think about our uh, global economic system based on extraction, we're not going to want to change uh, easily. It's not a simple matter of, oh, I guess we'll stop doing business as usual that has given us the modern world. That seems unlikely. 
But in that context, there are Noah-like people. And here, I think a word like archetype is needed. The archetype of Noah, the pattern of Noah, who sets about, who has a kind of divine insight, you could say, and comes up with kind of a crazy plan and gets out uh, his hammer and the nails and pitch and begins to build a vessel that will float out onto the coming sea of chaos to to create a, a future yet unseen. And the story, I think, an, an apocalyptic story like this is giving, giving us a kind of choice as a reader. What kind of person do you want to be given the fact that the flood is coming and the flood is coming? Do you want to be a person who breaks the status quo and begins to craft a vessel? And, and meaning you could even say a, a new kind of consciousness. Maybe that's a, even a better way of symbolically understanding the ark, the vessel. And, and a new consciousness is needed to float out onto the sea of chaos, like in the Rilke poem, the winged creature out um, above the, the chaos of change. And, or do you want to just business as usual? I think that's, if you, that begins to answer the question, why were apocalyptic stories told? Because I think it's challenging our own tendency to get stuck with whatever the status quo is, whatever level of consciousness is culturally comfortable for me. That's where I'd like to camp and and hang out. But the story says a flood is coming and it's going to it's going to destroy the world and, and that's supposed to threaten us and wake us up. And I think the other thing that's worth saying about about um myths like this, apocalyptic myths like this is that they're timeless. Not only do they sort of transcend their cultural context, but every element of the story can be seen as happening now in the present moment. That's what I mean by timeless. So what am I saying? We live right now, we're living in a time where the waters are rising and we're living in a time where the dove is being sent out, seeking that dry ground, seeking the olive leaf and the first emergence of a new way of being. That's happening at the same time. That's what makes them so powerful. That's what makes a myth so powerful. You can move in and out of any part of the story, seeing how it puts pressure on your own personal ego and on the culture at large. And it's sort of saying um, both of these things are needed right right now. What kind of person are you? Are you building a vessel and are you looking for those seeds of new life? <laughs> maybe maybe it's a bit like, um, like the book I mentioned at, at the beginning. We ought to be looking at what can we do now? What is already right in front of us? Where are those new shoots that are coming up? And also preparing a boat uh, to float out onto the, a vessel to float out onto the coming chaos, even though we don't exactly know what it's going to look like. And also people that know that the waters are rising. So all these things, all these things become symbolic invitations that can shift our consciousness toward one that's more generative, life-giving, adult-like, even, believe it or not, like an elder who might have future generations in mind rather than the self-serving cul-de-sac of narcissism and nihilism. So th those are some of the themes that I see in the Noah-like story, or in the Noah story, that I think are relevant. And apocalyptic stories uh, and myths in general um, 
are so important because they rest deep in the psyche. That's why why I'm making a a, a series called "We've Lost the Plot." When people say I'm not in the Bible, I'm over it. I'm saying it's in it's in the collective unconscious. It's in your personal unconscious. It's there. These stories, a flood story is in there. So let's work with it and let's see what it has to teach us in a modern era that's obsessed with facts. What's true is what I can Google. Well, myths operate on a much deeper level than what you can Google. So those are a couple thoughts on the um, on the flood story. And, and let's talk about uh, the book of Revelation briefly. So I've actually thought about this. I don't know if I'm going to do it, but I, I thought it would be interesting. I could make a whole series just on the book of Revelation, but I don't know if people would really... Uh, I don't know how many people would really get into it. But to me, it's one of the more interesting uh, books in the entire Bible. The fact that it's either Luther or Calvin, I can't remember which, wanted to get it out of the Bible, (laughs) not include it in the Protestant Reformation, tells you, all right, there's something here. There's something here that because actually people have a kind of attraction or repulsion by it, it's really doing something. It's doing a number on the psyche. It's, 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 um, operating on that symbolic and challenging level. So, first of all, just something about the word. Apocalypse means to reveal. And that alone ought to change uh, the way we hold texts like this. When we hear the apocalypse, we think destruction. That's not even what the word means. It's revealing. It's to reveal. And apocalyptic literature was a whole genre of literature, of which Revelation is just one of many, many texts like this. And they, what are they meant to do? They're meant to, to pull back the curtain, like in The Wizard of Oz, and reveal the nature of the way things are, the nature of the divine, the nature of earth, the nature of empire, the nature of what... It's, it's like, let's peel back the curtain to the present moment and see what's really going on. And of course, it's using ancient symbolic language to do so beasts and 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 demons and winged creatures and and plagues and and all of the good stuff of of um the gods and goddesses of antiquity are all mixed in there and and it's provocative and challenging and strange it's like a dream and anyone who does dream work which i i do dream work i work with people with their dreams and also um I have my own dreams worked, <laughs> or I let me be more clear. I help, um, I help the dream to do its work on people. And when I'm having my own dreams worked, I'm hoping the dream will do its work on me. It's the same with these kind of uh, deeply rich and archaic and archetypal images. They're meant to work on us, and in a way, even frighten us at times. And we recognize something, our psyche recognizes something in them. That's why uh, even a book like Revelation that the, the Protestants wanted to get rid of couldn't. You can't get rid of it. It's too, it's too strange and too deep. And one part of you resonates with it, whether you like it or not. So the question becomes, what is it revealing? And that's a complex question because the book of Revelation is 20 some chapters long. So I, I'm not going to get into into every detail of it. But I think, um, let me first say a couple things about how the sort of the Christendom, I think, began to misunderstand 
the book of Revelation. I think they thought about it in some ways, even from the beginning, a literal, uh, more literally than they should have. Like by the time you get to Augustine, who's writing the city of God, there's a little bit of literalism happening that, no, this is actually going to happen and maybe actually going to happen in the way the book of Revelation re- reveals a, a kind of new heaven, a new Jerusalem is coming, meaning Rome probably, and everything is going to be put to rights and and uh, except <laughs> the backdrop of Christendom. Christendom had adopted the ways of the Roman Empire and actually the so-called peace and Christian Empire was doing the same things that the Roman Empire was doing to its enemies. So hardly a, a state of peace, but we could say literalism is beginning to to creep into Christian apocalyptic thought that the end is going to happen and it's going to be final rather than the ways in which this literature um, had always been taken as part of the life-death life cycle, as part of the destruction-renewal pattern at the very heart of the universe. So um, I don't think that was nearly as damaging as what happened to Christian apocalyptic thought post-Enlightenment. So by the, uh, the Enlightenment brought forth really a, a new definition of truth. And it's kind of hard for us to even realize that because it's like we're so, it's so deeply ingrained in us now. We tend to think about the truth is what we can know from the five senses, is scientific truth, is um, the scientific method must be applied to truth. And that went really deep. And and thank God, I mean, it's like an amazing monumental leap in human consciousness. Yet it it had the its dark side or its blind side was that it limited truth to the scientific realm, which meant things like the Bible started getting shoved. And the Bible is a very complex book filled with different genres of literature written in three different languages over vast quantities of time edited by dozens of people and even inside a given book it's not even a book but there's a series of books inside those given books are different kinds of literature written by different kinds of people with different kinds of agendas and so forth and so on so uh this beautiful i think complex and sacred document got run through the lens of scientific truth that if it says in the, the book of Joshua that the sun stood still, that's what happened. Uh, it says, the <laughs> I was just thinking about some modern funny things, but it says there are four corners of the earth in, in I think Isaiah, may actually mention in Revelation too, um, therefore the earth is flat, you know, <laughs> this kind of extreme literalism. It says six days of creation, that's exactly what happened there, six 24-hour periods of, which is odd because the, sun and the moon get created. So it's hard to even know what a 24-hour time period is. But anyway, I don't need to get into the weeds. Um, that, that if the Bible is going to be true, it has to play by the scientific, by scientific materialism, really, <clears throat> which has done, I, I don't know, such great damage to, to the Christian faith, really. It has ruined many people's faith and has backed those who have faith into unnecessary corners where they're building arcs to the same dimensions that are mentioned in the Noah story in fields in Tennessee. That's such an unnecessary corner to be backed into. And 
but I, I, I get it. I mean, I, I think I understand why when, when scientific enlightenment said, if things are true, they have to be historical. It's a fair thing to say, well, my book is historical. And, and let me lend some credence to that. Much of the Bible is historically reliable. It says Jesus got into a boat and went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Well, you can do that. Come with me to Israel. <laughs> By the way, I have a pilgrimage, January 2 through 11, to Israel and Palestine. You should definitely come. Sign up for it. There's a little bit of information on my website, but more importantly, a form, and I'll send you all the details. Um, I've got a pretty small group so far. This would be a really good trip to, to get on. I believe in the power of pilgrimage. And... Um, pilgrimage as a spiritual adventure. And we study the life of Jesus, history, culture. We study a little bit of modern politics. I think of it as a 101 trip. Uh, that's part of it. No matter where you stand politically, or if you don't know where you stand, the facts on the ground will, will challenge you. So we ought to be giving our attention to this complex part of the world right now. So come with me, come with the there, experience a bit of it, experience the history of, 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 of the Christian faith, the Jewish faith, and and the land itself um, will be our teacher. Anyway, that was a bit of a, a plug for the Israel trip. Anyway, my point was, uh, this comes from a scholar named uh, Bargel Pixner, a Catholic Franciscan. He said there are uh, five Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the land of Israel. And you'd be surprised how much just the geography confirms a lot of the historicity of the biblical narrative. It's just, that's not the only genre, meaning history, that the Bible is dabbling with. It's it's dabbling with myth and with symbol and with image and with story and with poetry. And what a delight to, to hold the Bible with such... Um, such um, such vastness <laughs> to be surprised at just how rich it is in, in in all of its many layers, but but back to my point about Christian apocalyptic thought. Once the Bible got literalized, then we were really in for it when it comes to the Book of Revelation. And I grew up in in a Christian fundamentalist culture that was extremely committed to complex and detailed scenarios about the end, playing out the book of Revelation chapter by chapter, verse by verse, this is going to happen, then Russia is going to get involved, and then it says that locusts are going to devour the earth, and that's really Apache helicopters, and and then nuclear holocaust, and, and trying to say God has given us a map for the future. That's not what's, quote, being revealed in the apocalypse. It's taking us behind the curtain of the human psyche and behind the curtain of human culture and human empire, poking around in what's really true. It's not meant to be a roadmap. It's not meant to be literalized in that sense. It's meant to invite us in, like in the flood story, into the question of what kind of person am I? Am I? And given the fact that the collapse renewal cycle is always at work, where are we in this? What kind of contributing member um, am I going to be in the collapse renewal cycle? Or am I just going to resign myself to the status quo or gleefully hope it all happens so my enemies will burn up, which is kind of what we were doing as fundamentalists. Like, oh, I can't wait for God to, you know, get back at people who don't believe in him, which is such a dark thought anyway. 
and burn everything up. And that kind of literalism, not only has it done damage to the Christian faith, I think it's done damage to Western culture in general. And, and it works its way into our economic policies and our environmental policies. And it's not easy to identify, but I think it's there. Might as well cut off mountaintops in, in the Appalachian, the oldest mountains in the United States, by the way, and extract what we can extract because we're going to get a, quote, new heaven and new earth. That's in the book of Revelation. This is going to come down anyway, and it's going to be perfect as opposed to this kind of messed up one. I think this is so far from the intention of the apocalypse, of what the book is meant to reveal. It's so far from a healthy lifestyle. It's it's a vast exercise in in losing the plot of the story itself. So uh, I think we have some work to do to to undo that. And something that Michael Mead said on a couple podcasts ago that absolutely floored me. He said Christian fundamentalists and their resignation about end times and the roadmap and their literalism of their own texts. The same thing is happening in the scientific community. And I was like, what? Say that again. And he went on to say, just kind of briefly, it was almost an aside, he said, We're, the scientific community is doling out numbers and scenarios and predictions that they are taking to be literally true. They're making the same mistake. It's rooted in the same consciousness. Whereas the consciousness of the, of the mythic mind says, we are always in collapse and renewal. And yes, the world, I mean, Michael Mead is no, he's... He's not trying to cover up the fact that the earth is suffering, but he's saying the, the mythic mindset says the seeds of re- regeneration are also being planted. And there is no end times scenario. Things will fall apart and things will be renewed. And what kind of person do you want to be? Do you, do you want to be like Noah, building boats for the future, sending out doves for, uh, to, connect, uh, to see those little shoots of of the olive grove or in the revelation story there's a number in there it says that there'll be 144,000 saints a remnant things are going to be bad in the empire but there's always a remnant that's a myth that's a symbolic image that is also fundamentally true and that's a good definition definition of a myth it might not be historically true or literally true but it's true on the deepest level there's always a remnant there's always a remnant of in this case saints uh, that that um, are about a different way of being in the world, and the book is actually inviting us into that number to be. You know, when the saints go marching in, I'll be in that number. I mean, that, that's that's kind of the the invitation of books like this on the level of transformation, or a personal transformation, rather than than the status quo. And I and I thought about one line. Let me find it real quick um, from the book of Revelation, and and just to tell you uh, how relevant this book is. So here's a woe. Uh, Woe to you, great city, you mighty city of Babylon. Babylon was the, in the Jewish mind, was the ancient city that sort of loomed above all else that came and destroyed the, the Jewish people in 586 BC. So, it's using Babylon to, to talk about Rome. I mean, if you want the cultural context, but the image of empire itself is what's, what's meant here. Woe to you, mighty city of Babylon. In one hour, your doom has come. Which isn't that true of all empires. The merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her because no one buys 
their cargoes anymore. Cargoes of gold, silver, precious stones and pearls, fine linen, purple, silk, and scarlet cloth, every sort of citron wood, and articles of every kind made of ivory, costly wood, bronze, iron, marble, cargoes of cinnamon and spice, of incense and myrrh and frankincense, of wine and olive oil and fine flour and wheat and cattle and sheep and horses and carriages, and human beings sold as slaves. This is the consumer economy of the Roman Empire. And it seemed like it was going to last forever. And the same can be said of the, of the American Empire and, and of, of if there's such thing as the Western Empire itself or, or corporations as empire. Saying, woe to you, these, these goods that you thought would last forever, no one will buy anymore. They're, they're worthless. They will say, the fruit you long for is gone from you. All your luxury and splendor have vanished, never to be recovered. So, I mean, I could go on and on because this is only one tiny section of the, of, of the book. But you see, what is it saying symbolically? It's saying that when, you're, when the culture is bent on Hamas violence and extraction and greed, and luxury, even at the cost of, of the lives of human beings, it will not last forever. The earth will eventually say enough. And that's actually what's happening in the book of Revelation. All these plagues are earth-oriented plagues. The earth eventually says, no, um, we can't tolerate this. Um, and the empire collapses. It collapses, it collapses, which is frightening and scary, and they're suffering. And yet, there is a wind. There is a present wind a remnant that blows over uh, the waters of chaos and brings forth what is unexpected and unseen to our kind of narcissistic and nihilistic uh, cul-de-sac of a mind. Anyway, I think that's um, what is at least one tiny gift of the book of Revelation and the sort of thing that it's inviting us to contemplate. It's saying... It's the end of the world. And the parentheses is as we know it, because that's what happens. The world comes to an end as we know it. And the regenerative mystery moves again and brings forth what we have not yet seen. I'm not trying to gloss over the fact that things are dark and our future seems grim, but I'm trying to invite us into what the poets and storytellers and artists and myth makers have been whispering in our ears that there is a secret at the very center of the universe and that is the life-death life cycle of all things that is the death and resurrection of all things that is the um, destruction renewal pattern at the very heart of the universe and what's called forth is a consciousness that lives in harmony and in reverence and in wonder to the life-death life cycle and even invites us to be participants in such a thing. To be um, boat builders, ark builders, and seekers of the olive branch and the remnant of the 144,000 um, those who, who long for, I was thinking about the very end of the book of Revelation, the, this tree at the center of the new city, Jerusalem, of which it, it bears fruit for the healing of the nations. 
don't you want that? And one of the surprising things about the biblical narrative is it says you can play a role in this. It elevates human participation, like in the like in the story of Noah, like Jesus saying to his, his disciples, now you go do this. That's the, that's the uh, invitation, the meta invitation of these stories. You can be a participant. You can help bring forth fruit that heals the nations. It's time for us to stop um, uh, or resist the pretty natural uh, nihilistic resignation that it's all going to burn, that Jesus is going to bail us out in the end, or, or in a completely scientific materialistic sense, it's all going to burn. The, the earth is going to be swallowed up by the sun anyway in a billion years. So what's the point? The myths say there is a point, and it's worth fighting for, and it's worth uh, submitting to, and it's worth being curious about, like the end of uh, Rilke's poem here. No one ought ever love their suffering, but no one ever loves without its pain. And as we die, and I think there's a literal sense to that, and there's uh, a death of our consciousness that I think he's alluding to. And as we die, we come to wondering if there was something we could not yet see. That winged thing that merges with earth's suffering and makes us what we otherwise would never be says Rilke. I have to thank uh, someone named Chris Erdman, who has a blog where he translates some of Rilke's poems. I got this translation from him. Beautiful translation, so thank you. Thanks for being a part of this. Uh, if you want to support this podcast, please become a patron uh, through patreon.com forward slash Kent Dobson, or the link is also on my website, kentdobson.com. Your support is really important and very helpful. And I sort of threw out a number that I thought was hard to reach or seemed impossible. I said, if I get 50 patrons, I'll, I'll record an audio book without the publishing industry and, and release it. And I'm, I'm halfway there. So I'm like, oh no, I, I, it's coming. So any, any dollar amount helps. And, if, and you can most obviously support this podcast just by sharing it. And my last one, the, my Enneagram podcast, the last couple I did, really stirred the conversation up. And, and thanks to you all sharing it. So keep sharing it. So uh, Share it on your social media feeds. Tell your friends about it. I'm really, this podcast is called Hints and Guesses for a Reason. I'm not trying to have a definitive um, answer for what is the apocalypse or the Enneagram or, or the Bible or whatever. I, I, I hope it stirs conversation and... Um, what an awesome time to be alive that we, we, can, we can have this kind of online uh, relationship. So anyway, become a patron if you want um, and share the podcast with people you know. So again, thanks for listening.